I'm part of a reading group uh, for young men involved in ministry in Oxford. Um, we meet monthly at half six in the morning uh, to discuss a book that, that most of us have read. Uh, and when we met this Thursday just gone, uh, the conversation turned to uh, some of the Christian leaders who um, seem to have fallen from grace in recent years. And when I think of those leaders, uh, what often saddens me the most isn't so much the men themselves, but those under them, those who are led by them, uh, many of whom have faiths, if not whole lives, that are lying shattered now. And it got me thinking, is there anything that we, the church, could have done differently to help those leaders, to help ourselves, to protect those involved? And I'm studying 1 Timothy 1 this week. I think that this chapter wouldn't have been a bad place to start. Um, so last week, um, Dave looked at the first half of the chapter with us. But I think, in a sense, it's probably good to consider the whole chapter as a unit, uh, because, um, as you can probably see, uh, uh, Paul finishes the chapter uh, in the same way he began it, uh, with his charge or his command to Timothy. And then the kind of, so that bookends the chapter. Um, it's in verses 3 and 4, the command, um, Stay there in Ephesus, Paul says to Timothy, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, Paul doesn't really go into specifics in this letter about who the individual false teachers are and what exact false doctrine it is that they're teaching. But it seems clear that the Ephesian church, the church that Paul's left Timothy to lead, is facing some fairly substantial wrong teaching. And it seems to be coming from within, from leaders within the church itself. Uh, so imagine for a moment uh, Timothy sitting at his desk, reading this letter and getting to the end of verse 11. How do you think he might have been feeling? When I read it, I imagine his head flopping on his desk in despair. False doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, controversial speculations, meaningless talk. And as if, and as if the presence of false teachers wasn't enough, those Timothy's seeking to save are very far from God. Lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, parent killers and murderers, sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, Slave traders, liars, perjurers. What hope does Timothy, the young leader, have? What chance does he stand in the face of such enemies and in the face of such sin? Maybe he should just give up. Quit while he's ahead. But then we get verses 12 to 20. Because Paul doesn't just reiterate the charge of verse 3 at the end of verse 11, and then move on to the more detailed instructions that come later in the letter. Now, he writes verses 12 to 20. Timothy needed verses 12 to 20. And so do we, if we've ever faced opposition from those calling themselves Christians, but going beyond or away from biblical truths. Or if we've taken a hard look at the sinfulness of the world around us any time recently. Timothy needed verses 12 to 20. And so do we. Paul's answer to Timothy in these verses, don't give up the fight. Don't give up the fight, Timothy. And we'll see this evening two reasons why Timothy shouldn't give up the fight in verses 12 to 17. And then a reiteration of Paul's charge in verses 18 to 20 with an even stronger appeal. So the first reason why Timothy shouldn't give up, don't give up. Because Christ transformed Paul the persecutor into his servant. Verses 12 to 14. Timothy shouldn't give up, Paul says, 
because Christ poured out his grace on Paul of all people and made him his servant. And we get a first glimmer of hope, actually, in verse 11. I wonder whether you spotted it. Um, The sound doctrine, Paul writes, that confirms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So amidst these false teachers and their foolish rejection of sound doctrine and the Ephesian unbelievers and their sinfulness, we get Paul. The one to whom the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God has been entrusted. Surely the great apostle Paul has nothing to do with and is nothing like any of the people who've been mentioned so far in the letter. Well, no, that hasn't always been the case. Because just look in verse 13 at the terms Paul uses to describe his former self. A blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, ignorance, unbelieving. We know from his background as a Pharisee that he didn't live a sort of open life of immorality. But we also know from accounts such as the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 that these five descriptions were all definitely true of Paul at one stage. He blasphemed against God. He persecuted and was violent towards God's people. He was most certainly ignorant of what the Bible actually meant and unbelieving in the God the Bible proclaimed. Paul was a terrible, terrible sinner. But even though, verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Paul, a terrible sinner that he was, was shown mercy. He was forgiven. It's that simple. And notice that Paul doesn't say despite in verse 13. He says because. God showed him mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. That phrase has um, taken up quite a lot of my time this week. I'm still not sure I've gotten gotten to the bottom of it. But there are a few things that we know that Paul can't be saying in this verse because of elsewhere in the Bible. He can't be saying that acting in ignorance and unbelief is what you should do to get God's mercy. And we know he isn't trying to excuse himself, I didn't know any better, or to remove his guilt, I can't be held to blame because God wanted me in that state. I think rather, and I'm indebted to commentaries here, that that he's sort of criticising the false teachers he's opposing. You see, Paul's blasphemy, persecution and violence, great as it was, came from a place of ignorance and unbelief before the truth had been revealed to him. These false teachers, however, claimed to know the truth, to be clever, well-informed and believing, and yet they blaspheme. So who are you going to trust, Timothy, says Paul? Who are you going to trust? Paul was a terrible, terrible sinner, but God showed him mercy. How did that great event occur? Well, you can read of Paul's conversion in Acts 9. But that's not where Paul goes as he describes Christ's work in him. He focuses much more here on his calling and equipping as an apostle. Jesus has given me strength. He considered me trustworthy. He appointed me to his service. You can trust me, Timothy. Not only has Christ saved me, but he's made me his servant. He's put me here in this position to help you lead this church. You can trust me. And he finishes with a glorious description in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
that word abundantly comes from a Greek word, apparently, that means overflowing, going far beyond what was required. Like when you turn on a tap to fill up your glass at the sink, you look the other way and you turn back and there's water pouring over the sides of the glass into the sink. Paul was given grace in abundance, far beyond what even he, terrible sinner as he was, could possibly have needed. He was utterly transformed from a terrible sinner into a servant of Christ by the power and the mercy of Jesus. No wonder he begins this section with the words, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, in verse 12. So take confidence, Timothy. Don't give up the fight, Timothy, because Christ poured out his grace on Paul the persecutor and transformed him into a servant of Christ. So don't give up. There are a few different ways we might need to hear this message of Christ's power to transform tonight. For some of us, it might be that we've forgotten or even stopped believing that change is even possible. I think of the young Christian woman wrapped by the guilt of sins in the past, her own and those done against her, unable to let go, struggling to forgive and be forgiven, unable to imagine life free from these chains. But remember, sister, your background is no barrier to Christ's power. He's poured out his grace abundantly on you, and he has so much more grace still to pour. So don't give up. Give thanks to Christ for the work he's already done in you, and remember how totally he can transform you. For others, we know that Christ can transform, but we're not sure how much. I think of the older Christian man, aware of a particular sin creeping in as he grows older, He's fighting it, but he's also kind of resigned to it. It's just part of ageing. It'll be fixed in the new creation. But remember, brother, Christ's power is not limited by age, ability or health. He has poured out his grace abundantly on you. And he has so much more grace still to pour. So don't give up. Give thanks to Christ for the work he's already done in you. And remember how totally he can transform you. And for perhaps others... Uh, we know that transformation is possible, but we're trying to do it in our own strength. I think of the Christian man struggling with pride. He, he feels like he's battled and battled, but nothing he's put in place seems to have worked. He just doesn't seem able to beat this sin. But remember, brother, Christ's power is not limited by your strength. He's poured out his grace abundantly on you, and he has so much more grace still to pour. So don't give up. Give thanks to Christ for the work he's already done in you, and remember how totally he can transform you. I wonder where do you need to hear this message of transformation tonight? In what situation do you need to know that Christ is that powerful, that he can work a transformation that extraordinary? Don't give up the fight, Timothy, because Christ poured out his grace on Paul the persecutor and transformed him into a servant of Christ. The second reason why you shouldn't give up don't give up, because Christ came to save shameful sinners. In verses 15 to 17. Timothy shouldn't give up, because Christ came to save shameful sinners. Paul isn't some glorious anomaly, a wonderful one-off, you know, the one Jane Austen film adaptation that actually was as good as the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Paul's not just picked, perhaps because God has some special purpose that he alone could do. Paul is part of a pattern. This goes way bigger than Paul. He says, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You listening, Timothy? 
Big statement coming. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Um, Okay. Isn't that a little obvious, Paul? Didn't Timothy already know that one? Well, I'm not sure it necessarily would have felt all that obvious, or at least all that certain to Timothy as he read this letter. Remember the situation that he was in. Young, inexperienced, browbeaten by the older and wiser leaders around him, tempted to give up. Tempted not to bother fighting for the true gospel anymore. In which case, I wonder whether this was just what Timothy needed to hear. This line that's so familiar to our ears, that takes our minds back to when Jesus walked the earth, hanging out with criminals, crooks and losers like Zacchaeus, and telling them, and anyone who would listen, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why might this have been just what Timothy needed to hear? Well, I think... Having subtly compared the false teachers with himself in verses 12 to 14, Paul now wants Timothy to compare the false teachers with Jesus. And there are two ways in which this simple nine-word saying reveals how far short the false teachers fall from Jesus. Because number one, saving sinners is what Jesus alone had the power to do. And number two, saving sinners is what Jesus alone wants to do. We saw already in Paul's example of himself at the extent of Jesus' ability to transform. He took Paul, not just a sinner, but the worst or foremost of sinners in verse 15, and he saved him. He took him from blasphemer, persecutor, violent, ignorant, unbelieving, to saved, forgiven, and appointed to God's service as an apostle. And if God has the power to transform Paul, the worst of sinners, He can transform anyone, Paul is saying here. The false teachers might be able to trance you with a whole new argument about the nature of the genealogies and numbers or in Chronicles, verse 4, but I don't think any of them ever transformed a shameful sinner into a child of God, says Paul. Saving sinners is what Jesus alone had the power to do because he alone took the punishment for their rebellion on the cross. And saving sinners... Is what Jesus wants to do. While these false teachers wrap themselves up in controversial speculations, verse 4, and meaningless talk, verse 5, seeking to lead astray and manipulate people, like the young widows Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Jesus came to save sinners. Of all the ways that Paul could have described salvation, of all the ways that he describes it elsewhere, being justified, being made righteous, Uh, having the trespasses against you forgiven, being redeemed. He chooses the language of love here. He showed me mercy and immense patience. Not only does Jesus have the power to save sinners, he loves to save sinners. He longs to save sinners. That's why he came. And Paul is just one example of the lengths our God will go to the depths of his patience, the slowness of his anger, the abounding nature of his love to save sinners, to save anyone, verse 16, who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Saving sinners is what Jesus alone had the power to do, and it's what Jesus wants to do. And Paul erupts in praise in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't give up the fight, Timothy. Why not? Because Christ came to save shameful sinners.
Again, there are a few different ways we might need to hear this message of Christ's mission to save tonight. Uh, Some of us might, like the false teachers, have become so wrapped up in church and service and theology and Christian life uh, that we've forgotten that this is what Jesus' mission is. I think of the young guy, he's so stuck in at church, he's on this rotor, he's in that group, he's serving in more ways than he can count on his fingers. But when's the last time he invited a non-Christian friend or colleague to church? Or told someone the gospel? Or prayed for someone to become a Christian? Christ came to save sinners. Don't forget, if you're not on every rotor, if you have to say no to stuff sometimes, if you don't know every answer and you haven't read every book, that's okay. Because Christ came to save sinners, not to create rotor fillers. For others of us, we know that Christ came to save the lost and we're passionate about evangelism, but we're not sure that he can or would want to save some of the people in our lives. I think of a girl who's been praying for her unbelieving brother for years. There were points where he seemed so close to coming to faith and then he slid away again. And now he seems further away than ever. But Christ came to save sinners. Don't forget. There's no one who's too far away from him to be saved. No one's out of his reach. Keep praying, keep trusting, keep hoping. You have no idea what incredible things he may have planned to do. For others, perhaps, um, a bit like before, uh, we we know that Christ came to save all kinds of sinners, but we're trying to save them in our own strength. I think of a new graduate inspired for evangelism after her university years, but getting increasingly frustrated. She's brought her friend along to so many events. She's explained the gospel so clearly several times. She's committed to praying for this friend every day, and yet she still hasn't become a Christian yet. But Christ came to save sinners. Don't forget. Yes, he gracefully chooses to work through us, but he will do the work. It's his work to soften hearts, not ours. So you can breathe a sigh of relief and give yourself a break. Christ came to save sinners. I wonder where this hits home for you tonight. This reminder that Jesus' mission is to save sinners, that he has the power and the desire to do that. Don't give up the fight, Timothy. Don't give up, because Christ transformed Paul the persecutor into his servant. And don't give up, because Christ came to save shameful sinners. We've seen two reasons why Timothy shouldn't give up. And Paul concludes the chapter by reminding Timothy of his earlier command with an even stronger appeal this time. So fight, he says, because a battle is on. Verses 18 to 20. Don't give up, Timothy. Fight. Because a battle is on. In each section of our passage tonight, Paul, I think, draws a subtle comparison between the false teachers and another personal group of people. So in verses 12 to 14, it's probably a comparison between Paul himself and the false teachers. Paul was saved and appointed by Jesus' great mercy. Paul has been transformed by Jesus. Have they been? In verses 15 to 17, the contrast is between Jesus and the false teachers. Jesus has the power and the desire to transform such shameful sinners. Is that what they have the power to do? Is that what they want to do? And in this final section, the contrast is, I think, between Timothy himself and these false teachers. And there are quite a few different elements to this comparison. First, we're reminded at this stage that this is a personal letter from one friend to another. 
And Paul begins with a gentle reminder of the close relationship he and Timothy have in verse 18. Timothy, my son, he addresses him. The command this whole chapter, in fact this whole letter, comes out, uh, is about, comes out of Timothy's personal relationship with Paul. He doesn't stand alone against these false teachers. He stands with the Apostle Paul, servant of Christ, commissioned by him. His opponents have no such authority or support standing behind them, commissioning them. Secondly, he reminds Timothy of the prophecy which was made about him earlier in his ministry. Verse 18, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. Now, we're not told um, exactly when or how this prophecy occurred. We get a little bit more about it in um, chapter 4, verse 14, and in 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 6. Um, But why does Paul want Timothy to remember this prophecy? Well, from chapter 4, verse 12, we can infer that Timothy was probably not being regarded in the terms of this prophecy as a man with the gift of God within the Ephesian church he was leading at this time, or at least not by everyone. Remember, Timothy, says Paul, you have the gift of God, as testified to you by the elders and by an apostle. These four teachers have no such gift. Thirdly, he reminds Timothy of the weapons he must hold on to if he is to succeed in this battle. Fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Echoes there from back in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. How is Timothy going to keep fighting? He'll need to hold on to faith, his trust in God, and a good conscience, the right actions and decisions that come out of faith. And you wouldn't realise it from reading the Bible in English, um, but the Greek word for faith, um, pistis, occurs, or a word derived from it occurs, actually seven times in this passage. Um, We just get it simply as faith uh, here, and in verse 14, and in verse 19. Uh, We get it as trustworthy or faithful in verse 12, in verse 15. Uh, In verse 16, we get it as an action, have faith, believe. Uh, And we get the opposite of it in verse 13, lack of faith, unbelief. Faith is key in this section. And holding on to faith will be key for Timothy. Faith in the Christ who saves sinners. And not just having that faith, but acting according to that faith in good conscience. And then finally, Paul gives Timothy a warning of what happens to those who don't hold on to faith and a good conscience, in verse 19, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. And he gives the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20. You see, this may start, Timothy, as just a disagreement about a genealogy or a speculation that perhaps goes a bit beyond what the Bible says. But it ends in shipwreck, the ruin of someone's faith. Don't go there, Timothy. Don't stop trusting Jesus. Don't let go of faith. And don't stop acting on your faith. Don't let your conscience slide. And take solace, Timothy. Because painful as an an image as it may be, those who do go there and are fighting against you will in the end find their ships run aground, shipwrecked. They will not win. Now, Timothy may have been tempted to throw in the towel and give up on his Christian faith altogether, but I suspect the bigger temptation 
as a young man, surrounded by dominating older people, was just to keep quiet. Keep quiet and carry on. But Paul won't let Timothy do that. His instruction in verse 18 is clear. Fight the battle well. Sitting tight and hoping the false teachers quieten down, that their meaningless talk and endless genealogies are little more than a distraction that people will eventually lose interest in, well, that isn't okay, says Paul. You need to fight, Timothy. Don't give up. A battle is on. Fight and fight well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. When, I wonder, are we tempted to give up the fight? When are we tempted to put down the sword of the Spirit, take off the armour of God and opt for a quiet life? Perhaps there's a situation in which we're tempted to tolerate or, or simply ignore false teaching. Uh, in the staff room or the canteen at work, perhaps, you have a colleague who'd call themselves a Christian. Uh, they're quite a leader amongst your colleagues and they're quite vocal in their opinions, especially when it comes to Christian ethics. And you've heard so many times them loudly declaring that God is a God of love and that Christians need to be more loving because God values all kinds and expressions of love and judges no one. And you've always found a way to speak up in the past, to try to give something of a biblical perspective amongst your colleagues. But today you're just too tired. You let the comments pass unchallenged. And next week it's a bit harder to speak up. And then before you know it, you're not challenging it at all. Don't give up. Because a battle is on. Fight. And fight well. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Maybe you're fighting, but not in the right way. It's become all about the fight. And you've lost sight of faith. The Christian worker, passionate for the cause, zealous for the organisation and its values and aims, evangelical for the current initiative and everything it represents and is trying to achieve. But Jesus? Not, not so fervent about him anymore. Fight, but fight well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. In the face of great opposition and great sin, Timothy needed verse 12 to 20. And so do we. Paul's message? Don't give up the fight, Timothy. Don't give up the fight. Because Christ transformed Paul the persecutor to be his servant. You have no idea the transformations Christ could perform dear Timothy, and what he's already done in you. And don't give up the fight, because Christ came to save shameful sinners. He has the power to save sinners. That's what his mission was all about. You have no idea who he plans to save and how, dear Timothy. So fight, Timothy, and fight well. Remember your calling. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Don't give up the fight, Timothy. Fight, and fight well.